The views and opinions expressed on Reasonably Speaking are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position of the American Law Institute or the speakers' organizations. The content presented in this broadcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. Please be advised that episodes of Reasonably Speaking explore complex and often sensitive legal topics and may contain mature content. Thank you for joining us on Reasonably Speaking. This episode features one of a series of interviews that ALI is conducting with longtime ALI members as part of our oral history series. In this episode, ALI Council Member Kenneth Frazier of Merck is interviewed by Alfred Putnam of Fagery, Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath. This interview was conducted on January 22, 2020. Ken Frazier has served as the Chairman of the Board and Chief Executive Officer of Merck since 2011, where he has substantially increased Merck's investment in research, including early research, while refocusing the organization on the launch and growth of key products that benefit society, including vaccines. Ken joined the company in 1992 and has held positions of increasing responsibility, including general counsel and president. Prior to joining Merck, Ken was a partner with the Philadelphia law firm of Drinker, Biddle, and Wraith. Ken's contributions, especially in the legal, business, and humanitarian fields, have been widely recognized. He sits on several boards, including Weill Cornell Medicine, Exxon Mobil Corporation, and Cornerstone Christian Academy. Ken received his undergraduate degree from Penn State and his law degree from Harvard Law School. Interviewing Ken is Alfred Putnam. Alfie is Senior Counsel and Chairman Emeritus at Fagery Drinker. He is a trial and appellate litigator who served a 10-year term as chairman of the firm from 2005 to 2015. He has served as both president and chairman of the University of Pennsylvania Law School American Inn of Court. He has also been active in the nonprofit health sector, currently serving as chairman of the Lankanaw Medical Center Foundation. He earned undergraduate degrees from Harvard University and Oxford and his law degree from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Alfie and Ken first met as summer associates at Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath. We'll now turn to the oral history interview. The first voice you'll hear is Alfie Putnam. We're here to talk about you. So um, you grew up in Philadelphia. And uh, tell us a little bit about that, where you came from. Well, I was uh, born and raised in North Philadelphia, not very far from where we're sitting right now. Uh, A neighborhood that was a tough neighborhood, but was a tough working class neighborhood when I grew up. it's now, unfortunately, a much tougher neighborhood, uh, you know, in the inner city of Philadelphia. Uh, I was very fortunate to come along in a time when the social engineers in Philadelphia were experimenting with the public schools. And I'm the eighth of my father's nine children, second of my mother's three children. But in any event, my younger sister and I were put on buses and sent to schools outside our neighborhood. And those schools turned out to be rigorous, or at least comparatively rigorous, with respect to what was available in the neighborhood. And that explains my whole life thereafter. Well, you had older siblings that um, uh, had, shall we say, different prospects in life, and a younger sister who, you know, didn't she go to Springside or something? She went to Shipley and became a concert pianist. Yeah, well, that's the So, well, I always think, you know, you have uh, studies and not talking about birth order. Right. And how it means something. But I don't know that the studies actually are quite the same as as the example you're giving. Yeah. I mean, you know, the reality of the world is that our our society was grappling with some issues around equity Mm -hmm. in the early 1960s. Uh, You know, Dr. Martin Luther King was in some ways trying to raise the consciousness of the of the country. And um, my younger sister and I just happened to be in the birth order where what was clearly an experiment, a social experiment was going on in school desegregation, which is different from integration. It's the concept that there are these very good schools, that they shouldn't be all white, and that we should allow a few poor black kids to get on a bus and go to the school. I hated that. I have to say, I absolutely hated that because the kids that were on my block, the kids that I played with every day, they all went to school together. They walked to school, they came home together, they played basketball. I was on the bus for an hour and a half to go to a school in a foreign place to me. Uh, Mm -hmm. Turns out that was extremely beneficial. You ended up uh, going to Penn State. How did that happen? Well, it's actually an interesting story. At least I thought it was interesting. Um, My my mother's sister, who was a funeral director in North Philadelphia, 
uh, had a very good friendship with, uh, with uh, Robert N.C. Nix Sr., who was then one of the few black congressmen in the country. Uh, and uh, in those days, they had an appointment system for the military academies. And uh, my aunt uh, said to, to Congressman Nix, you know, my nephew would be a good candidate for the service academies. And Congressman Nix said, that's great because he hadn't been able to exercise his appointment recently as it relates to someone living in his district. And so long story short, uh, my, my aunt came to sit with my father and she impressed upon my father, who by the way, had a third grade education, that this would be one of the greatest things that ever happened in the history of the Frazier family. Mm -hmm. And chronologically, this was during the Vietnam War. So we're talking about 1970. Right. And I wasn't in a hurry to go into the military but long story short, uh, I was uh, compelled to apply to the <laughs> Naval Academy and to West Point, and I was admitted to both. And uh, in my senior year, I remember getting a letter from the Commandant at West Point, and it said something to the effect of, Dear Mr. Frazier, in reviewing your records, we have discovered that you are 15 years old because I had skipped yeah, several you were, grades, you were young, right. right? And so they said you had to go to a military finishing school for two years in order to be inducted into the army. And I went to my father. I'd never really wanted to go into West Point or into right, service right, at right. that time. I went to my father and I said, change circumstances. <laughs> uh, do we owe it to Congressman Nix? And don't I get to go to college now? And he agreed. And he said, well, where do you want to go? And at that time in 1970, Penn State had won 33 consecutive football games under Joe Paterno. Hard to argue with. And that was the basis of my decision. <laughs> <laughs> A sound ground. Right, exactly. So, and from there to the Harvard Law School? Yeah, but I got over Harvard Law School. I knew that. It, right. it seemed to leave no mark on you by right. the time I bumped into you. Right. So. Yeah, so I, I went to Harvard Law School in 1975. It was a really fundamentally different experience than going to undergraduate school. You know, Penn State had a lot of first-generation mm -hmm. college students. When I arrived at Harvard Law School, it was just the opposite. In fact, one of the things relating back to the fact that I went to Penn State is that for many of my classmates, they couldn't understand what I meant when I said I went to Penn State. They said, surely you mean University of Pennsylvania. Right, right, right. right? right. Of course. <laughs> you didn't mean Penn State. <laughs> but uh, it was it was a... A tough experience for me. You're always going to say, did you like it? Or no, not? I didn't. No, not I at didn't all. Like it. Yeah. yeah, you know, so I didn't mind the academic part of it. I wanted to be a lawyer. And that was always something that uh, I, I found the study of law to be fascinating. It was the social side of things. Uh, you know, I, um, I was going to school with people, many of whom had, you know, parents and grandparents who had gone there, who had gone to prep schools, Ivy League schools. Mm -hmm. For me, that was a big social adjustment. It wasn't you know, necessarily just a question of being from the inner city of Philadelphia or being black. It was just, that was a different group of people from a different part of society, but it sort of prepared me for the law firm of Drinker, Bill and Reed. I was gonna say, if you were, if it was one of those things that made you uncomfortable, it was a very interesting law firm today. Absolutely. <laughs> how, did, how did that come about? Well, you know, I was interviewing, uh, when, I, when I went to law school, I should back up and say, my only conception of what it meant to be a lawyer was to look at the solo practitioners who practiced in my old neighborhood. And they you know, generally would do divorces and wills and criminal defense work. I didn't know that lawyers banded together collectively in large law firms. And so I didn't know that happened and I didn't know that they represented large companies. But shortly after getting to Harvard Law School, I was made aware of that. And I was made aware of the fact that I was expected to interview, interview. with those and, kinds and of dress. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, it's a funny story. I didn't own a suit when I went to law school. I don't think I owned a suit from the time I was a little child, like an Easter suit to go right, to right. church sure. on Sunday. Right. Uh, and when I learned that you needed to have a suit, uh, I remember calling my dad and saying, I need some money to go to Filene's basement in Boston to buy a suit. And I bought a suit to interview in. And I interviewed with uh, two of two people who became my law partners, Charlie Wolf and Amy Davis. Ah, and you knew those two. Before. I certainly do. So Charlie Wolf was, of course, a jokester. Mm -hmm. And Amy was as stern as it could right, possibly right. get. Yeah. So I didn't know how to handle the interview because one person was cracking jokes over here. And the other person was looking at me like, justify your existence. And, <laughs> and by the way, and where are your grace? Where are your, your suit? Suit? <laughs> <laughs> But what, what attracted me to the firm 
was, and you know this, it was the history of the firm in pro bono work. It always seemed to be a firm that was involved in the kind of work that sort of made me want to go to law school in the first place that, you know, uh, people like Henry Sawyer were, right. were giants. That's all there is to it. Yeah. And did you work with Henry when you were there? Yes, I did. I thought him. you did. I right. thought you did. I worked with him, too, while I was there. Yeah. It's a little left wing for me. But well, maybe, maybe it was a big for hero for me, <laughs> um, you know, and when you're in law school and you're reading uh, Lemon v. Kurtzman and Abington versus Shemp and you know the lawyer who Argue. litigated those cases, Argue. argued those cases, um, that made a big impression on me. You, uh, I mean, I met And the story, you. Henry Drinker's story. I um, love yeah. this. Oh, the yeah, Mud no, company, was it? Yeah, no, that's right. He, right. Yeah, we, you, the company that wanted to fire, uh, the, uh, wanted Henry Drinker to fire Henry Sawyer because Henry yeah. Sawyer was involved with the communists. Right. And uh, Henry- The funny thing about the world is that's flipped around now. Yes, you I know. know. It's, it's a totally- Right, I was- It's reverse. You try to fire law firms for the, for the other reason now. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, uh, I'm on the- uh, the Dean's Advisory Board at Harvard Law School, which shows that I'm really old. Yes. And and now you have people who are saying firms should not be able to interview on campus because they represent oil companies who are destroying the environment. Right. Or they represent someone who's been accused of rape. Right. Or they represent the United States government and therefore the whole, you know, issue of, of deportation and ICE becomes an issue. Uh, it's fascinating. No, I know. And I mean, just people may not know that the, the drinker story is that the client did come and ask that he stop Sawyer from doing this for the communists. And, and drinker said to him, that, said to the client that uh, it's not the way it works, that right. um, you can you can pick your lawyers, but uh, right. um, we, we, we don't, you know, you can't pick our clients. Yeah, the story, as I was told, is that he said, when the client said, I'm going to move the work, I'm told that Henry Drinker said, that, sir, is your prerogative. Good day. Good day. <laughs> he did. He did. Um, and indeed, I don't I don't think they didn't move the work. By the way. <laughs> <laughs> what was what was interesting to me about that story is that uh, Drinker never told Sawyer. Right. Sawyer yeah. learned about it after. He learned out years afterwards. When right? Drinker was gone. And now it's a big challenge for law firms. You know, oh, I, I saw... think it's an enormous challenge. I mean, having having sat in the seat where you've got you fall under pressure for various reasons. And if uh, people say they don't like um, you have a tobacco client or, uh, you know, or an oil or, or a drug company. Or a drug for company. A fend, if right. you can imagine anything. People so, who sell drugs. People who sell drugs. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you're right. And and the, and the world changed in terms of how they, uh, how people think about things. I always said when we got to the, you know, women never lie about rape. Mm -hmm. And I said, I knew it. I knew it. The Scottsboro boys were guilty. I always Well, but that's the issue, right? I mean, right. it's, you know, as on the Dean's council, we were having this conversation and the Dean of Harvard Law School doesn't know how to say that there's this ethos, this set of values that trumps whatever your personal political predilections mm -hmm. are, then that's the concept that everyone deserves representation. And when you think about firms as large groups of people, thousands of lawyers now, what's the likelihood that one lawyer won't take on a client that another lawyer disapproves well, of? Well, that's the thing. You get to it internally. I don't need to wait for the clients, right? You're going to have somebody internally who's going to say, you can't possibly be representing and I end up saying, well, well, I'm not. It's well, I had a little bit of that partner. when I was at Drinker, Biddle and Wreath. Yeah. Oh, sure. You know, with out. the with the smoking and health cases, yeah, there would be I a few virtuous people saying, no, how I can you represent those people? You're not going to tell people you represent right. some cigarette people. Right. Well, maybe may, I, would, you I, may won't, have. I won't have to admit that because this, <laughs> this tape won't be seen by anybody <laughs> other than us. Uh, and then there were people, as you know, we were doing the work for the... Uh, prisoner on death row in Alabama. How can you represent murderers? Yeah, I had that. I right. think I asked you I that. think you did. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I'm trying to you. make the world safe for murderers, yeah, I think was your exactly quote. that's <laughs> exactly what I said. I think that's right. <laughs> but no, you did do it. It's sort of interesting. Well, you go back for a little bit. You, you show up at Drinker. I met you in the summer of 1977 when we were both uh, summer associates at right. Drinker, Bill and how did you feel about that? You talk about coming into Harvard, you got interviewed and so on. I mean, speaking for myself, I kind of felt I was playing a home game for the last 50 years or so. so. It wasn't easy. Well, that's my question. No, it wasn't yeah. easy. So there, as, you, as you know, 
each firm has its own culture, its own set of behaviors and ways of thinking and doing things. And for me, coming into Drinker Bill and Wreath, the first couple of years were really, really hard. Let me give you an example of that. And I think you might remember this when I tell you this. My first year review, mm -hmm. you helped me decipher. You may not remember this, but I was given a review by one of the senior partners, Vernon Stanton. Yeah. And I came to Mr. Stanton's office. And the, the thing that I remember most about this, of course, your heart is in your throat. You're thinking, is this the end of my legal career, my early undistinguished legal career? And I go into Vern's office. And he could not have taken the time to read the written reviews before I arrived. So I had to sit there while he was reading the reviews in front of me with this incredibly scary scowl on his face as he, as he looked at one, read it, looked at the next one, read it. And then he looked up at me and here was essentially my first year review. He said, well, Kenny, you're doing all right but you've yet to show that little spark that a boy needs to get into Princeton. Well, that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that story? Because I remember coming to you and you said, well, you know, if you went to the Chestnut Hill Academy, <laughs> the really smart boys went to Princeton yeah, and Harvard person. and the not so smart boys went to Penn. <laughs> That's right. But coming from North Philadelphia, I didn't know what to make what of to that. Say, what to think of that. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well, but you're early on, at least it seemed to me, once we were full-time lawyers, you were getting sort of chances in what I call real trials. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, w was interesting to me. You got to try some cases. Yeah. I did too a little later, but I'm, I remember sitting around and you got a call from some judge who said, oh, we're taking you off the list and you hadn't had a trial yet. And he said, that's all right, you're not going first. Right. Or whatever it was. Well, I got some really good opportunities and I can draw a connection between the job that I have now as CEO of Merck and what you just said, because I was assigned to do a case uh, for Bob Ryan, who was a senior partner, a very great lawyer, mm -hmm. Drinker Bill and Wreath, who was the main lawyer for Merck. Recently gone, sad to say. I did not know he passed away. He did, just earlier, last year. I did not know yeah, that. Down in Florida, but anyway. He, he... So Bob Ryan uh, was had this case and there were other lawyers on it. Um, lawyer by the name of Mike Floyd was on the case. Mm -hmm. Underneath him was a very junior partner named Jim Sweet, and I was the associate. Yeah. And this was a case for- So you were doing the work. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that particular This line. was a, a, a subsidiary of Merck, which is no longer a part of the Merck, called Baltimore Airquare, which made those large cooling towers that you see on top of buildings. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it was a longshoreman and harbor workers case. Uh, and uh, we were getting ready for trial in about a week or so. And uh, I was working on the jury instructions. I remember we were all sitting around in a conference room. And I think Mike Floyd was going to take the lead in the case. And I said to Bob Ryan uh, that I'd love to have a chance to try the case. I'd been there for maybe 13 months at that point. Right. And he looked at me sort of, are you serious? Mm -hmm. and, and he said, well, go home, Kenny and come in Monday, this was a Friday afternoon, and, and show us how you would open to the jury. And you know, I remember I had a date that Saturday night, but I scrapped that and I worked really hard over the weekend to try to prepare an opening statement. And I came in on Monday morning and I told Bob Ryan what I would say. And he got on the speakerphone, they used to have those things on right, the cradle, right. and he got on the speakerphone with Bob Bance. Yes, sure. He was the general counsel of Merck at the time. And I still remember the conversation. He says, we have this young feller who wants to try a jury trial and it's not a lot of money. And, you know, he's got to get his experience somewhere. somewhere. Mm -hmm. And believe it or not, Bob Bantz thought that was great. He's like, well, give the young feller a chance. Then. <laughs> <laughs> right? right. So they said, you can do this. And I went down and it was in front of the then chief judge, uh, Judge Luongo. Right. right. And uh, they sent. Uh, Jim Sweet with me to make sure that I didn't, you know, pass exactly. out or throw something up on embarrassing, myself, right? Okay. Uh, and we tried the case. And what I also remember was the plaintiff's lawyer, I think this was unique to the Philadelphia bar maybe at that time, was extremely solicitous of the fact that I was inexperienced, mm -hmm. right? We went back in chambers and Luongo said, this is his first trial. We're not, we're gonna play it down the middle here, right? Right, right. <laughs> right? There'll be some things that he doesn't know, but we're gonna, you know, play it down the middle. And the jury gave a verdict for Baltimore Aircoil in the case. And, and I, your career was made. Yeah, actually, 
I think that that helped Bob Vance know who I was. And thereafter, he would request that I be put on cases of, you know, increasing size and complexity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can draw a direct connection between that and ultimately becoming general counsel of Merck and then ultimately becoming CEO. Mm -hmm. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, Drinker, Bill and Reith at that time, there were a lot of really great lawyers, the Henry Sawyers, the Pat Ryans, the Bob Ryans, the Mo Brooks of the world. And it had a pedagogical bent to it. I guess what I was right, trying right. to say. Mm -hmm. uh, you remember that too. I do indeed. You know, it wasn't all about billable hours. It was about professionalism and people cared about developing young lawyers. And if you really wanted to become a good lawyer, uh, people cared about that. And I'll just say one more thing about coming from North Philly. Um, I sometimes think about the absence of political correctness in that context, because, you know, I was from another world. I was a stranger in a strange land. And people could have said, well, let's not offend him. You know what I'm trying to say, Alfie? They right. could have no, said, no, I do. they could have said, you know, maybe we should treat him with kid gloves. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I can still remember going to Henry Sawyer's office one day where we had a case, the Penn's Landing case, and uh, Mayor Good was the mayor at the time, and we were representing the Penn's Landing Corporation. And I wrote a letter uh, to the city solicitor and to the mayor on behalf of Henry, and I made the god awful sin of splitting an infinity. I saw you do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I came into Henry's office and he looked up at me and he pushed the letter across the table to me and, and he said something to the effect of, you know, Mr. Fraser, our clients pay us good money to practice the law. They have every right to believe that we are facile in our native tongue. <laughs> Which is the drinker bill and wreath way of telling you all. <laughs> in my old neighborhood, they would say, hey, dumbass, what, don't what do it that? again. What is, what is that? What is that? Well, you did. I mean, uh, you were developing, I think, a reputation within the firm as a, a kind of a go-to trial lawyer. And I should say nowadays, for many years later, it's very hard for a young lawyer to get a chance to try anything because people don't try much anymore. Right. And so you got to see juries. I got to see some juries when I was younger, but you know, they, they, they're rare if you're Well, what, 2% two, two of all civil actions right. try in the federal courts. You don't get the chances. But I guess my question is, did you, because um, obviously you did end up leaving the firm, which no one could understand, um, <laughs> and going to some other world, do you ever regret not turning into, because you, you would have been a very successful I trial lawyer. I absolutely do regret it. I mean, first of all, I would never have left the firm if it was a decision that I made on my own. Mm -hmm. So I'll come back mm -hmm. to that in a minute. But all I ever really wanted to be in my life was a jury trial lawyer. It's the reason I went to law school. You know, I don't want to be corny or cliche, but, you know, I remember being a kid and, and watching the movie To Kill a Mockingbird and mm -hmm. saying that, that that's that's what I want to be. I want to be a lawyer for people in that way. Mm -hmm. So, and I I found myself with more and more opportunities, and I was getting an opportunity to, to do the kinds of cases that I liked, including a death penalty case and that kind of thing. I only went to Merck because Andrea, my wife, uh, was the placement director at NYU Law School, and her view of the, of the uh, legal profession was more from the headhunter side of things. Mm -hmm. And so when Merck made the offer for me to go, uh, I was just going to be polite and go and talk to Dr. Vagelos, who's the CEO, and, and decline because I didn't want to offend the client. Right, right. But Andrea said, you know, I think you might want to rethink this because I remember her saying, I don't think the next generation of lawyers will work as hard for you as you work for Henry Sawyer. Mm -hmm. I, I might well be true but in any event. <laughs> and so that transition, I mean, you probably ought to come back to the Cochrane case, but that, that transition um, going from law firm to a business world, I've had some friends who've done it, and they all um, have had some difficulties. I it mean, was they, boring. Yeah, they find um, yeah. Th they're not sort of... It was boring. Yeah. Compared to the diversity of activity at the clientele, the opportunities that I had at Drinker when I came into Merck working at that time for what was then called Astra Merck, a small right. subsidiary mm -hmm. of Merck. Um, I found the legal work there to be what lower level associates would do at a law firm. Mm -hmm. I was paid very well to do it, 
I also found that the clients didn't really understand that they were asking the same question over and over again. They thought it was a different question, but they kept asking me the same, same question. question. Yeah. And I thought it was incredibly boring. And I intended to come back to the firm because the understanding that I had when I left with certain senior partners in the firm is that, you know, you know, Kenny, if it doesn't work out, you can always come back. And I was thinking about coming back. And then I got hired by the then CEO of Merck to do something that was outside the legal field, which was a great job representing the company. And it's sort of the public affairs arena and with Congress and governments around the world and New York Times and mm -hmm, all that kind mm -hmm. of that I found interesting mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, it was a different form of advocacy. It was during the the Clinton administration's first term when we were going to change health care. Right. And the CEO of Merck felt that the company wasn't doing a very good job of explaining itself. And mm -hmm. I found that that was not unlike talking to a jury. Mm -hmm. And you kept, well, let me go back for a minute and say, because it's just, I think, worth getting down on that. You did have a very big case. Your most important case at Drinker, Bill & Reith would be, in your opinion, your death penalty case. I mean, I'm, I'm pulling out of the air. Well, I, I mean, we I had some good cases on the business side, but there was that that case is the most important case to me personally. What I tell people about doing that case is that when I first took that case on, my daughter was like five or six years old. It was something she understood. Mm -hmm. You know, when you mm -hmm. talked about that case at the dinner table, she could identify with what the issue was. It was a, it was a raw issue of justice, and it was a collision. Might say a little bit about the case. All right, so, so I, you know, I took on a case when I was a partner at Drinker Bill and Reith, where we represented a man named Bo Cochran. James Willie Cochran was his given name, and he had an execution date set for a crime uh, in which uh, it, was, it was subsequent to a murder, excuse me, subsequent to a robbery. And, and one of the people who was searching for the robber was shot in the process of looking for the robber. Uh, <clears throat> and and Bo was sentenced to death. Uh, and when the case came in, Esther Lardent, who ran the, the ABA's post-conviction death penalty project, called me and she said, you're the basically our last chance, because the guy's gonna be executed in a month or so, and we need somebody to do the case. And to be honest, I was really busy. My wife had been sick for a while, and I was not sure I had the time, but two young associates, Michael Holston and Seamus Duffy, learned about the case, and they came to me and said, if you'll take the case, we'll do most of the work. work. And to be honest, they shamed me into taking the case. I mean, I couldn't say no to these young, mm -hmm. eager lawyers right, who right, thought this right. was, they sort of looked up to me and said, you know, this would be a lot of fun. So I took the case on and, uh, you know, you don't want to know all the details of the case, but I will say a few things about the case that were eye-opening. First of all, he was convicted of a crime which under the Alabama Penal Code um, did not fit the facts of the case as the state alleged. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, because he was convicted under a provision of the penal code that made it a death eligible offense to shoot somebody during the course of a robbery. You know, used to classic, you don't want the robber to kill the witnesses kind right. of thing. Right. right. This happened as a part of the flight from the robbery, which it was really clear from the legislative history was not a not part of the robbery. Had in mind. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And yet his lawyer didn't even raise that issue. And by the time we got the case on post-conviction, we couldn't raise it right. because it had been defaulted. Right. Right. And I just, from an editorial standpoint, you and I tried cases in the federal court. I assume that, like me, you never won anything by default. <laughs> right. That's, that's and pretty much right. <laughs> you know, you couldn't even get a judge to bar certain testimony based on requests for admissions. Right. right. You, right. The plaintiffs didn't answer the request for admissions. And the judge would say, well, that's true, Mr. Frazier, but, but we're not going to. We're not going to do this by just, default. Just, just ask, answer the question. Right, exactly. <laughs> but it turns out in habeas, it's probably the only part of civil jurisdiction in the federal courts where you can lose on default mm -hmm. because of the procedural default rules set up by the Supreme Court. So some of the very best issues in that case, obvious issues, we couldn't even raise. And you know, issues that went to sort of factual innocence were in some ways barred or waived. Right, sure. But fortunately, uh, the jury selection process was one in which, you know, in, in Alabama, it was routine to strike black jurors in a case where the defendant was black and the, uh, the, the victim was white. And, 
you know, the, the federal judge had not allowed us to raise that issue. And then unfortunately that federal judge, unfortunately for him and his family, he passed away and the case got given to Sam Pointer. Do you know who Sam Pointer is? I, yeah, I do. Yeah, who chaired the federal rules committee and Sam Pointer took a different point of view when he started to sniff around and see that there was evidence of innocence in this case. And uh, we were able to get relief on a Batson claim. Right, right. Right, and uh, Batson being the Supreme Court case where, you know- Striking uh, jurors. Striking jurors on the basis of race, race, right? Mm -hmm. Was ruled to be unconstitutional. Anyway, it was a great case. And, you know, because we knew we had a client who we could prove was innocent. In fact, we, when we first met the client in the state penitentiary at Atmore on death row, you know, you go down there and you say to the client, in effect, I don't want to talk about the case, the underlying facts. We're litigating a stay because mm -hmm. the attorney general would not grant us a stay. So I only going to ask you a set of questions that go to the stay question, right? Mm -hmm. And we'll get to the, and he said, I didn't commit the crime. Everybody knows that it was an accidental police shooting. And I'm like, sure. There are no guilty men in this jail. Never has been. Right? <laughs> <laughs> only innocent people are in the jail. But three or four years later, when we fought and got discovery, we actually found an, not an eyewitness, but a near ear witness to the, to the actual shooting who told exactly the story that my client told. And by the time it got retried, by the time we got a new trial, the jury was out for less than an hour for a crime that he spent 19 years on death row in a cell that was five by seven, you know, mm -hmm. on a row where the, the electric chair, which was being used in Alabama at the time, was right down the road. So this man had this horrible, horrible life, you know, you know, not to be too cliche about it, but you're living on death row in a five by seven cell for 19 years. You believe you're in a place where there is no God. <laughs> it yeah. can't be a God right. if you're sitting there under those circumstances. Well, I, rather than leave people with the impression that you are somehow a really sort of great person. Let's just briefly talk about the tobacco case. Oh, okay. okay. Sure. <laughs> the only thing I want to say, you you were a local counsel for some tobacco companies. Yes. I remember when they used to come in, yes. they'd take you to the most expensive restaurant in Philadelphia because yes. they wanted to show the plaintiff's lawyers that they were willing to spend some money they didn't care. So I represented tobacco companies in what were in those days were called euphemistically smoking and health cases. That's right. That's right. They were sort of diametrically opposed kind That's of concepts. Right. So you right? say. Uh, and um, I have to put this out there. Um, when I had those cases in the late 80s, early 90s, it was before it was discovered that there were documents that weren't being produced, mm -hmm. um, which I think really swung that litigation in favor of the attorneys general, right? Uh, right? But yes, we represented, uh, you know, Philip Morris and Laura Lard in those days, and um, they and you, were- And you went to good restaurants. I yes. was really trying to probe that, that sort of psychology of the time. They, you know, they were one of the few clients that would complain if your bills were not heavy enough because they were worried that you were paying attention to other people. We have been looking for a right. like that. <laughs> but these cases, they thought of them as existential cases. And, and they hadn't lost any, right? No, I mean, they, they hadn't. Was, yeah, they, they'd they, lost a few, but not many. Right. Right. And, and the, Do you and remember the, Craig Fuller who worked for President Reagan? Yeah. Uh -huh. Craig Fuller ran uh, public affairs at Philip Morris. Mm -hmm. And he had two strategies, one of which was to encourage uh, reasonable taxation of tobacco because he said state uh, legislatures which have these balanced budget requirements would become more addicted to nicotine than smokers actually <laughs> good, would. Good. With, yeah, that's right, working for me. Right. <laughs> that was the first thing. And the second one was to stress this issue of liberty. And when you would try those cases, you would never try those cases essentially on just the facts. You would talk about do people have the right to make a choice to smoke with a warning on the pack? And juries sort of believe that you did. Mm -hmm. And uh, I learned a lot, which became helpful to me later on, because when I, when I became general counsel of Merck, we had some 60,000 Vioxx cases. I remember that. Right. And I, as I recall, not to probe, but Merck was accused of adopting what is called the junkyard dog strategy in dealing with Vioxx cases. Yeah, which I learned from smoking and health cases. Right. I mean, the, and if the right. junkyard dog strategy, for those who don't know it really is, to make it very, very hard for the plaintiff and to make sure you're going to try every one so it's just not a big payday yeah. and make them prove their cases. Right. Um, which they hate. 
with oh, the uh, plaintiff's lawyers. Some of them speak highly of you, but that's just because they think they better. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's fascinating because you know, going back to the smoking and health cases, what I learned in those cases is that time is on the defendant's side, and that in some ways you're not just litigating individual cases; you're litigating against a business model. Oh, right. Right. A mm -hmm. business model that advertises on television for a bunch of cases, many of which are not being screened and, in any and meaningful way. And sometimes borrows money. I and mean, so, they, they exactly. Gotta, I need that payday. And right. if the payday doesn't come in until September, I've got some problems. So. so we took the position that we were going to try these cases. We tried, I think, 18 of them. Uh, we, we won something like eight of the last 10 jury verdicts. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, we're able to get, a, I thought, a good global settlement. But the, the big part of that case was convincing our board that it wasn't individual cases that they should focus. It was on the long on game. The long one. Because right. you might might recall our first case, we got a horrible verdict against Hammered. us in Texas, $253 million. Sounds like a lot of money then. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, but the, the good news was the board knew that was going to happen, that they that the first trial was going to be in a jurisdiction where they had runaway juries and we had a runaway jury and and fortunately, uh, ultimately, we were actually in that one case get, able to get the Texas Supreme Court not only to reverse the jury verdict, but to instruct that verdict be actually entered for the defendant based on the lack of proof in that case. Well, I asked you earlier about wanting to be a, a, a trial lawyer and what mm -hmm. kind of trial lawyer you've been, but your reputation to some degree among um, people who know is that maybe the trial of the Vioxx cases was your success as a great trial lawyer, that, that, that it had a big difference for the company and yeah. for the major. Do, do you think that that decision, because you were general counsel at the time, I mean, how did you become CEO? Just to ask, is, was, was Vioxx Last man standing. Yeah, well, that's the way I became CEO. <laughs> you know, I, I don't really, I can't draw a direct connection between Vioxx and becoming CEO because I had to have a number of other jobs between general counsel. I ran um, our marketing and sales division right. for mm -hmm. four years, and there were lots of opportunities to fail at that and show that you couldn't run a business. Because, right. you know, inside businesses, people think that lawyers are too conservative and you got all those stereotypes that you have to overcome. And, and then I was president for a while before I became CEO. But I do think the board had a lot of confidence in in my ability to make judgments after the buyouts thing. Cause that was that, you know, there were people who said the company was going to go bankrupt. A lot of people. I mean, it was in the newspapers right. anyway, and you were, you know, taking a stand or the decisions of Mr. Frazier. And so. But you know, if you think about it, um, what that case was mostly about inside Merck was the allegation that the company sold a product it knew to be dangerous and put profit before patient welfare. Our scientists couldn't live with that with being. That. They couldn't live. So it wasn't even a litigation strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we couldn't let Vioxx be a verbal shorthand for corporate greed the way, for example, Enron has become. Right. Right. right, right, right. If that ever happened, how could we recruit the next generation of scientists? Mm -hmm. Right. I was at a lunch the other day with the, the new dean of Harvard Medical School, and, you know, I'd never met him before. And he said, you know, what you need to know is that there was a period of time in the faculty of Harvard Medical School when the name Merck was, you know, not a, not was a not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And by defending yourselves, you know, not just in the courtroom, but in the court of public opinion, you've now fought back to a point where people now just consider that one isolated thing and it doesn't define you anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, how did you, how, how have you found being a captain of industry, uh, a CEO. You, you get in the newspapers from time to time. You um, show disrespect for I, our president wrongly. I, I can say that it's an overrated experience being the <laughs> CEO of a, of a big company. Um, it has the benefits of it, I will say to you, and I don't want to sound soft, Marsh, but what my company can do to alleviate human suffering on a mass scale is important. We talked about the death penalty case. That mm -hmm. was like eight, nine years for one person's lie, uh, I can now allocate capital. Just to give a recent example, because you know the government of the United States and the World Health Organization came to us a few years ago after the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and asked us to invest our human talent and our resources in developing an Ebola vaccine, which we've been very successful in doing. So you can save thousands of lives with a signature in a in mm -hmm. this position by. Right? 
you know, allocating capital to something like that. I mean, the coronavirus thing is now in the newspapers right now. Right. We're getting calls now because right. now people remember it's important to have a vaccine company. You know, right. Merck is the only real U.S.-based vaccine, vaccine company. company. Right. I mean, most pharma companies left vaccines many years ago because of life. And, and you got liability, you got <laughs> right. sued all the time, right? right. Which we right. thought was okay as lawyers. But, <laughs> but my, my point coming back to it is there's an aspect of this business that's really tough because, you know, shareholders are making demands on us for how we run the company. We have to run it efficiently. We have to create shareholder value. And at the same time, the fundamental purpose of the company is medicine. And while we don't take, you know, the Hippocratic Oath or anything like that, we have to recognize that uh, the cost and the complexity of healthcare in this country is something that we have an obligation to help solve. Mm -hmm. While making money for while our shareholders. Money. No, while making money. You know, um, I think a lot of CEOs just think they have to make money for their shareholders. If you're in the business of making medicines and vaccines, there is another constituency. Patients are important right. as well as shareholders. So it's a tough balance. Uh, but coming back to, well, linking back to coming to Drinker Bill and Wreath, it was, <clears throat> it reminds me a little bit about how pleased I was to join a company a firm rather, that cared about pro bono, right? Right. There was the billable work you did and there was the work you did in service to, to others. And, and we saw those as complementary and consistent with one another. And I think we try to do that at Merck. Yeah, well, and I think what you certainly having, having risen to the top of Merck, you're also a public figure in a number of ways. I'm, I'm gonna talk a little bit about things you've done outside of just being the head of Merck. But now that you have a, a public figure, you were active at Penn State, mm -hmm. um, you were active at, uh, at the ALI. And indeed, since we're here at the ALI, we might even discuss, I don't know, what your view of the ALI is. and what It's it has a very been. positive view. Well, good answer. <laughs> I'm glad, glad you got that one right. right. Um, but uh, uh, in terms of that kind of, not pro bono in the sense of, uh, we've been discussing, but, but the activity of being involved in a public eye, trying to make... Um, well, you mentioned the Trump thing. That's, yeah. that uh, was, yes, I did mention right. the Trump thing, well, yeah. You know. uh, and you got, it seemed to me, I got all these calls when you resigned um, saying, hey, do you have his email? Do you have his email? I want to, I want to tell him what a great thing. I, I said, don't tell him that. You know, wait, well, wait, that's wait. a challenge. Don't go to his head. That was not an easy decision because you, again, you have two sides to it. There's, there's your own personal set of values and your own conscience, which led very much in one direction after, after Charlottesville and after what I interpreted to be sort of the unspoken support that those early comments from the president gave to certain people who were out in the streets in Charlottesville, um, saying things that I thought that were, you know, counter to what we as a country believe in, right, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and on the other hand, I'm the CEO of Merck, and we're a publicly traded, highly regulated company. And the reason I was on the president's business council in the first place was because notwithstanding my own personal views of the political situation, I had an obligation to represent my company. So those things were in conflict, you know, mm -hmm. what was what was best for Merck in the short run would be to be quiet. Uh, um, but but I didn't feel like I could do that. Um, and uh, so I thought we needed to not only withdraw, but I needed to say publicly why I was withdrawing. And of course, the president knew how to respond immediately with a tweet, and two tweets, actually. That's my boy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So those are challenges when you're in that public situation or even something like the Ebola vaccine. You know, there will be shareholders who say, tell me how we monetize that. Right, right. Right. And I have to say to them, that was actually a question I got at the J.P. Morgan conference just last week. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, uh, we can't monetize all human suffering. Mm -hmm. We can monetize enough of it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. But not all of it. But not everything. Not, not right? everything's an opportunity. Yeah, no, right. I, so those are challenges. Uh, you know, the Penn State thing was probably the hardest thing I've ever dealt with in my entire life. Yeah. And, and well, in, in what respect? I can see why it might be. But you want to elaborate on that? Or you well, want I'll to just, just say not that, talk about it? I'll simply say that, uh, you know, Penn State has the largest alumni association of any school. It's got more graduates than any other school. And there's a lot of pride in, in what 
Coach Paterno stood for. There will never be another coach who coaches at one school for 60 years, right? right? right. And for this to happen at the end of his career was a very sad, very in sad. some ways, an unfair thing. And yet on the other side, there was children. Mm -hmm. right? there, there were children and, and the question was, are we gonna take a stand here for, um, for children? And you know, too often around our society, people look the other way, uh, not necessarily because they approve of what's happening, but because it's hard for people to, to actually deal, deal with, with it. They don't want to deal with it. It's really hard. And when it came to the board's uh, level, we had to make a decision of whether we were making a stand for the university and the football program and Coach Paternal his reputation on the one hand, or we were making a stand for certain values that we said were you know, sort of core to the university and including, you know, looking out for children. And, and we decided to do the latter, but it was, it was, it was painful. It was one of those decisions where there was no good decision to make. Right, right. A lot of flack to come in. Right. Let me go to the ALI for a minute or two, because there are- that's why we're here. That's, well, I don't know. We're on their dime. Here, but we are on their dime. <laughs> um, so it's, um, the ALI uh, over the years has done quite a lot in terms of um, bringing together very prominent lawyers and academics. And judges, a few misfits like and, that. And you, for <laughs> reasons that are not clear, um, to discuss what the law is. And should be. Well, and that's the question I want to ask, is to what degree, I mean, looking at what the ALI has been and is, and uh, is going to become, what do you, what, how do you, perceive it as looking forward to the future? Because I think there's some tension sometimes. There is tension, um, there's where, absolute where people, tension. Some Our insurance project, for example, mm -hmm. has become extremely controversial right now. Yeah. Right, I think the traditional concept of clarifying and simplifying the common law is not the controversy. The question is, how does the common law apply or how should it apply to changing facts, right? Mm -hmm. And every time you go there, you know, I'll give a couple of examples with the, the model penal code and the question of how does a, a judge preside over a death penalty case. And the ALI took a position that given the way in which death penalty cases are tried, that they didn't want to be in the business of creating sort of the false precision that if you follow the model penal code, you've had a fair trial because there's so many you know, exogenous factors right, that go right, into right, it, right? right? But that was extremely controversial to take a position on something like that. Right now, corporate governance, right? We're now having to take a position now. We have a project on corporate governance, right? We have a project on policing, mm -hmm. right? So how should police deal with something like uh, what inferences can be drawn from a defendant's race, right? I mean, these are not easy decisions. And we're going to be criticized or, or sexual offenses. Yeah, oh, the sexual offenses stuff. Right. I must tell you, just having spent some time looking at that one, because it had the defense bar... Um, people who defend criminals, as right. we say, um, and then uh, accused criminals anyway. Yeah, or accused criminals is what I meant. To right. say, uh, on the one side, and feminists right. um, on the other side, and they were at war with each other. And I just over became, consent, the definition I, I, of consent. I, I, I became right? fascinated. I got popcorn, and I. <laughs> but in all seriousness, you know, I, the, the way I think about this is, these are issues in our society, and they are issues that are going to be resolved through the legal system. And if the ALI, with the kinds of people that you just alluded to, doesn't try to grapple with them, how do we grapple with them? I mean, it's not like we created the issues around, you know, policing and race. Right. It's not like we created the issues around Me Too or, and, mm -hmm. and the, the evolving sense of, of what it means to provide you know, consent in the context of a sexual encounter. We didn't create those issues, right? We didn't create the issues around sort of what's the purpose of a corporation and how many constituencies does the corporation really serve? We didn't create those issues. Those are issues that are in society. And so if the ALI decides not to speak to those issues, what we get out of that is we become non-controversial. Right. But at the same time, I believe we become completely irrelevant on the issues that really matter. And I think lawyers do have a, a, a role to play in a lot of these incredibly contentious societal issues. And I think, well, my own sense is, of course, on any of the issues, 
what starts to happen is you see three states, suddenly th judges in the Supreme Court of Oregon says something, and it's either a good idea or a bad idea, right. but it starts to be said and it becomes the minority view or the majority view. I think the question that people sometimes struggle with on ALI issues is to what degree are is an ALI report discussing what is a minority view and a majority view and fairly but it always describing did. both sides. It's it always, always did. It always did. It's always right. been that way. Right. Or, uh, I mean, take a, we talked about cigarette cases, right? Right. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the restatement of torts is that you and I learned in law school. Right. Cigarettes were well, unavoidably, learned. unavoidably <laughs> unsafe products. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. They had a real strong defense. Mm -hmm. Right. And then there came a point in time when we asked ourselves, really, is that a social good? And do we want the law to provide a barrier? to these cases. And so over time, I think in a restatement third, we took a slightly different position about how strong a defense that should be. In my own business, there's issues around preemption, right? Mm -hmm. We ought to think about those issues. And, you know, uh, those tend to be less controversial than the social issues. Right. But the common law has evolved anyway, right. you know, over time, right? You and I both know this, this concept that we call stare decisis. Right. It just means the law is what it is until a clever lawyer makes an argument for why it should be something different, or at least different in a different set of facts, right? right. It's the way the law has always been, right? Actually. So so I think the ALI has always had to have that distinction between what's the majority view and what's an evolving view. I think it becomes controversial when you get into some of these social issues. Well, and I think, I'm, and the question is to what degree when you've, now I've defined the two views and everybody thinks I'm more or less right, am I now saying, yeah, but the evolving one's really much better. Yeah, but again, the ALI <laughs> has already has always taken a position about what's the the better the view. Better and, view. But at the end of the day, judges still decide these cases, right. right? The restatement of of contracts, or the restatement of torture, or whatever, isn't binding on a judge, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, right. No. Absolutely. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to say we've thought about it, we've looked at the logic of the cases. We believe the better view, the evolving view is the better view in this situation, but it's not binding. And what we see is you now you've got people going into legislatures and passing laws, for example, insurance companies say that judges cannot look at the restatement anymore. Oh, really? Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. Because they should not be influenced by the fact that by some that. scholars <laughs> uh, and practitioners and judges think that this is the better view. Again, it's not binding. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I don't think as, as as a young lawyer, it helped me to read the restatement when I was doing defending contract cases or defending tort cases. It helped me to formulate my arguments about why a particular provision should apply or not apply to my facts. Do you think that in the actual process that the ALI uses as they consider whether they should have a new restatement or a modification of a um, at least my own sense is sometimes the, the uh, scholars that show up are in fact partisans of, the, of a point of view. There's not, not evil, you know, but I, you, you find yourself when you go to some of those meetings, you'll find that there's some, I don't know, part of the insurance industry's there and the plaintiff's bar is there and or, you know, the Me Too people are there and the defense lawyers are there and, and you're sort of there saying it, it's kind of almost quasi-legislative, uh, it's not scholars, I'm saying to you. It's not, it's the, the old vision of the Senate, right, where they sit around and- yeah. think about But the reporters are scholars, generally. Yes, the, I think that's reporters. true, they, I think that's fair. They're actually trying to decipher all these conflicting views and perspectives and try to come up with something that makes sense. And they do indeed respond to, yeah. I mean, you send in a bunch of comments, I yeah. know from having participated on one side or another, Yeah, usually one side, um, the, the comments, they respond and they generally yeah. alter to the extent you have a good point. They alter what they're doing. Or the process isn't perfect, yeah. uh, but, I, but I think it's a net positive, especially for uh, lawyers who are not spending all their life in a field to have people oh, yeah. who do spend their life in a field wrestle with these things and say, this is my opinion, right? I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you know, you were the editor-in-chief of the Penn Law Review. The same argument could be made about the Penn Law Review at the right. end of the day, right? right? Maybe people should never read the Penn Law Review. I'm not sure that they ever really did. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but thanks you, for that thought. But you get my drift, <laughs> yeah, right? No, I do. Someone mm -hmm. could look at the 
Penn Law Review or Harvard Law Review, which often takes a position on an area of law and say, no, no, judges shouldn't read it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then after a while, then, then the law no longer has any chance to re-examine itself over time. It's just a question of stare decisis becomes rigid after a while. Right. And I don't know that that's what we No, want. that's not. And I think that's right. And I think that uh, people, the idea that judges shouldn't read other sources, I think is... Um, I understand the idea that they shouldn't read anything written by a foreigner. Well, I believe that was you that and Scalia. Article. You that, and Scalia, Scalia believe that. <laughs> I read that somewhere, right. and I said I never had thought of that. Right. But you just said it, so right. I'm with you now. Have so, <laughs> <laughs> you think of my own? So. Right. So you're. Um, I don't know. Maybe this is not the good place to ask the question, but you're. Um, we were joking before, you're getting towards the end of your um, present career anyway, because that's just the nature of things. Um, do you plan? What do you, how do you see yourself in 10 years? I, so first of all, um, retirement to me is a bad word. I, I'm not allowed to use it with right. my wife, but that has to do with jewelry. I, uh, I uh, want to go on past this Merck career uh, and do something in public service, probably back in the field of advocacy. Mm -hmm. I would love to do that. I feel young, I feel strong. I feel like I can do something to make a contribution. Um, so something in the field of public service is what I'm hoping to do. My ideal job would be one that's filled by a very able lawyer, Sherilyn Eiffel, who runs the Legal Defense Fund. I think that's a great organization. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the work that's done by legal services, I think those are, you know, that's great work that could be done uh, on behalf of of people who can't afford lawyers. And yeah. so there's a lot to be done with a law degree. Yeah, no, uh, it's it's to be said. It, uh, maybe towards the last question, but as a CEO, or for that matter, the president, you became more of an administrator. I probably started even before as a general counsel. Um, you hadn't really been trained for that. No. Um, and by all accounts, you're pretty good at it, but that may well be that that's just what people say. Um, do you have I'm any... really good at delegating out. <laughs> that's okay. Well, I'm that's... really good at delegating. Get someone and else to do that. Yeah, I, you know, I think anyone who's successful in business has assembled a good team. And uh, if you have the, a team around you, you have to know your own flat spots. And I have a lot of flat spots and I make sure that there are people on my team who compensate for them. So those administrative issues, uh, financial issues, and Merck scientific issues. Yeah, I was going to say, right? Right, right? I want to make sure that I have world-class people thinking about those issues. I think my job is very simple. I, have, I try to do three things in my job. Number one is to set the course for the company, which for us is at a time when other drug companies were not investing in research, we invested more in research, right? Mm -hmm. So that's it. That's the direction of the company. Uh, the next thing is you get to allocate scarce resources. I get to decide whether we're gonna spend money on an Ebola or not. Right. And mm -hmm. so I try to listen to the arguments for and against different opportunities mm -hmm. to invest and invest in those things that I think are gonna be best for patients and best for the company in the long run. And the last thing and the most important thing that I get to do is I get to decide who the people will be who will be in the important jobs. Mm -hmm. And I always think, you know, I think, you know, they said about President Reagan that his genius was, is putting really good people in the important jobs and then getting out of their way, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, I think if I've been successful at Merck, it's because I've tried to put really good people in, in those jobs and get out of the way. Um, you know, when you're the CEO of a company, a lot of people will tell you you're at the top of the pyramid. I think that's not true at all. If you're successful, it's because you've been lifted up by all these other really talented people. Mm -hmm. If you were um, um, thinking back now and approached for advice by, I don't know, some college student about what career path to follow, um, what advice would you, the world's changed since we were young in terms of what's a promising place to go and what's not. I've stayed at the same place for 40 years. No one does that anymore. Um, what, what do you think people ought to be, young people ought to be doing with their lives now? Well, I think it depends on where their passion is. And you know, I'm very fortunate that I knew I wanted to be a lawyer and it was everything I hoped it would be and more. Uh, 
But I know there are a lot of young people who go into law firms and practice law who are miserable. Hate it. Yeah. Absolutely hate it. And so I think the key is to find something that you're passionate about that makes you feel good when you get up in the morning. I know it sounds like a cliche, but you know, when I was practicing law, it didn't feel like work to me. When I came over to the business side, I realized I was working because mm-hmm. it wasn't natural to me. You know, people ask me, do you enjoy being CEO of Merck? I say, no, I don't enjoy it one bit. But you know what? I do have a sense of satisfaction and contribution that I'm making in this mm-hmm. role. But I think you should try to find the things that you're passionate about and you should seek some adventure. I mean, drink a bill and wreath. You remember you guys let me go to South Africa. Yeah, I do remember right? that. What was that During about? apartheid, right? Yeah. You could go to South Africa and teach in black law schools during apartheid. And I, what I loved about that Did you firm, bill for that? No, I didn't. Yeah. What I... What I loved about that opportunity was a senior partner now, God rest his soul, named John Ballard said mm-hmm. to me, the only thing we ask is that you come back with good stories. <laughs> right? That's all we ask. That would be John. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so find some adventure, I say, in a sense of purpose. That would be my only advice. Well, I'm pretty much done asking this man questions. He seems to have gotten very few of them right. Thank you for tuning in to Reasonably Speaking. Visit ALI.org to learn more about this important topic and our speakers. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Reasonably Speaking is produced by the American Law Institute with audio engineering by Kathleen Morton and digital editing by Sarah Ferrero. Podcast episodes are moderated by Jennifer Marinigo and I'm Sean Kellum.